Amen. So as a matter of introduction, the, the author here is continuing the discussion we had from last Lord's Day evening. That discussion that he places before us, that glorious truth that God has now brought and given a better covenant. A better covenant. In the last Lord's Day evening, we considered why it was better from chapter 8. It was better because there is a better high priest, Jesus Christ, rather than human only priest. Secondly, because it's based upon better promises. The promise God, that God makes to us in this second covenant are much better than the promises made in the first. And thirdly, because of the continuation of this covenant. That covenant came to an end. This covenant that the author is referring to now, this better covenant of which Christ is the mediator, the very next verse beyond what we read this morning, continues. And it continues for all eternity. And perhaps a, a, what, what he's doing here in chapter 9 is giving to us a, another reason that the covenant is better. It's better because the effect is better. Something better happens. There is a better result because of this covenant. And so we'll consider chapter 9, these opening 14 verses under the theme again of the supremacy of Christ, the eternal redemption. So our two points this morning are first of all the first covenant, because that's how the chapter begins once again, right? Now even the first covenant and then he's going to segue, although not naming it until verse 15, he is indeed considering the second covenant as well. But perhaps it would be wise to clarify once again. The first covenant, and by that first covenant that he's speaking of in Hebrews 8 and 9, he's speaking of the administration of the covenant of grace at Sinai. He's not talking about the covenant of works. This comparison between first and second, or a better covenant, is not reflecting upon the covenant of works, as if the covenant of works somehow was out of effect. We'll come back to that this evening because there is indeed still a tree of knowledge of good and evil. There is indeed the covenant of works that is in effect. When we sang this morning that God will come and judge the nations in righteousness and equity, he will hold men accountable for their obedience to that covenant of works. Now, under that covenant of works, we all stand condemned. But God has graciously come and given as well a covenant of grace. And if one is in the covenant of grace, then one is not under condemnation. What the author is saying is this. That covenant of grace that God announces as it were in the garden, Genesis 3.15, but then is made to Abraham. 
is a covenant that is still operative. That is still the same covenant. God has not replaced the covenant of grace. Now, let me turn, if you want to turn along, you can, to page 924 in the back of our hymn books where it it deals with the covenants in the Westminster Confession. Actually, go back to the bottom of page 923. I I won't read all these sections. I'll leave that to you to, to do this afternoon if you desire. But the first covenant, down way down at the bottom of page 923, under chapter 7, paragraph 2. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Three, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant. The the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promises to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life in his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Now go down to five. The covenant, this covenant, this covenant, this covenant of grace was differently administered in the time of the law. And in the time of the gospel. That's the discussion going on here in Hebrews 8 and 9. First covenant. The administration of the covenant of grace that takes place at Sinai. Listen to the next section. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews. First covenant. We tied in last Lord's Day evening. Chapter 8. There is no doubt he's dealing with Sinai. There's no doubt he's dealing with the tabernacle, as we see that before us in chapter 9. Right? First covenant. First administration of the covenant of grace. And other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were from that time sufficient and efficacious, through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect, in faith, in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. And then you have, under the gospel, when Christ, the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments of baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And then he goes on to say, less showy, but certainly, more powerful. So we have a first covenant or a first administration of that covenant. And as a quick sidebar to say, 
That's why we in the Reformed faith believe and practice infant baptism. Because the covenant of grace has not been set aside. It's still operative. And it's still operative not just to us. As God operated that covenant of grace to Abraham, it was operated not only to Abraham, but to his children as well. Signed, signified by baptism. When Christ comes to judge your little children, do you want them under the covenant of works? Or do you want them under the covenant of grace? Abraham, I want you to, I want you to circumcise Isaac. Because I want him. I want these. Boys, I want your children to be under the covenant of grace. I don't want to have to come and judge them under the covenant of works. And so we see, because that's never been replaced, that's never been changed. God never said, don't do that anymore. God graciously includes our children. So we have a first, we have a second covenant being discussed here in chapter 9. In that first covenant, the author tells us, there were all sorts of regulations for worship. So take us back to Sinai. What happens at Sinai? Oh man, there's laws and laws and laws given. The laws about washing, ceremonial washing, ceremonial cleansing. You got to do this and this and this. And you got to be cleansed by, you got to take some ashes of a red heifer. You got to mix in some scarlet wool. You got to stir it around with some holy water. And then you got to sprinkle it on people. And, and that'll be a ceremonial washing. Priests have to go through all sorts of ceremonial washings. So he's saying that in that first covenant, it came with all of these regulations, verse 1, for worship. And, secondly, it had a place of holiness. And he's describing for us then that tabernacle, the tent. Right? There are the furniture. In the first section, we have certain pieces of furniture in that holy place. In the second section, the most holy place, we have other pieces of furniture. So he's simply taking us through back to Sinai and saying, what did that first covenant look like? Well, it had washings, regulations for worship. It had, secondly, a place for this worship. And in that place of worship... Not only is there furniture, but there were articles. There was a golden pot of manna. There was Aaron's rod, his staff that had budded. And there were those two tablets of the law. All that's in that, that inner most holy place. He, he's reminding these Hebrew believers now of what was there. It had all of those things. And then he says... It, it also had sacrifices, right? Verse 6, these preparations having been made, the priests go regularly, and now he discusses the sacrifices. 
He discusses in 6 and 7 the work of the priests. What are they to do? How are they to enter? When can they enter? How can all of that take place? But then in verse 7, and if you have your scriptures open, look at that with me again. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking for himself, Blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So we have these regulations for worship. We have the place of worship, the tabernacle. And we have the people who are entrusted with the work of worship, the priests. Did you notice what he's pointing out in verse 7? He's pointing about the limitations. He's saying, but it fell short. Because you see, in that first administration, they could only be in the presence of God and only the priest, but once a year. They they could not be near to God. And, and, and that priest had to offer sacrifices for himself because he himself was a sinner. There's a limitation there. That's why we, we use the term again from chapter 8. This second administration of the covenant is better. Because there's no more limitations. That isn't there anymore. God gave to those people this sign. This symbol in the Old Testament. Of these washings. Of this tent. Of this tabernacle. Of the work of the priest. What? To point forward. Look at verse 8. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open. As long as the first section is standing. He's saying that yes, God gave that to them. It It was an act of God's grace. Abraham has the promises of God. The people of Israel had all of these Things to see, to witness, to hear, to smell. They had Christ before them. In these signs and in these types. But what happened? Well, as we discussed last week, they didn't keep the law. They became lawbreakers. So what does God do? God comes, which was his plan all along. God comes with a second covenant, a second administration of this covenant. We might say it's the administration of the covenant of grace in Christ. Or perhaps for our message this morning, we might say it's the administration of that covenant of grace at the cross. 
Not in shadows, not in types, but in the reality of the fulfillment of that covenant. Notice then that when we turn after that discussion to verse 11, He's talked all about this first covenant and what's included there. But then we have verse 11. But when Christ appeared. But. See, now there's a change. God's about to do something. God's about to do something amazing. God's about to do something that that is going to take our breath away. God is going to display his love for us in a way that demands our heart, our soul, our all. But when Christ appeared, a high priest of the good things that have come, not will come, not are going to come, but have come. He's already come. Now remember, these these Jewish believers are being drawn back to Judaism. They're going back to the law. They're going back to works. And and the author is simply saying that's a dead-end road. It's dead-end because it's done. It's over. God has revealed something even greater, something more glorious. He has revealed His Son. Christ coming into this world is the but when of the good things that have come. And Christ has entered a far superior tent or tabernacle than through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Remember the discussion a couple of weeks ago out of Hebrews? Right? That Christ is the one who has gone through the tabernacle, the tent of the heavens themselves. That Christ is not before some box where there is a cloud of the glory of the presence of God. But he now stands before the Father himself. He sits at the right hand of the majesty. It's it's not this earthly stuff anymore. With all of its limitations. Christ didn't pass through that earthly tent and tabernacle. He's passed through the heavenly tent. The heavenly tabernacle. And one might say, well, how did he gain entry? How was he allowed to do that? Well, remember the Old Testament? What they had to do? They had to take blood Right? And they had to sprinkle it, and he has to offer that blood for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, so that he, for a few moments every year, 
might be in the presence of God. What does the author tell us here in chapter 9? But he, not by the means of blood, of bulls and goats, not by the ashes of a heifer. He, by his own blood, has gained entry. He, by his own sacrifice of himself. Oh, that hymn we just sang about, his wounds still testify. His wounds still speak. When John has his vision of heaven and sees the lamb, he sees the lamb with a wound that has been healed. But he still sees the wound. Christ appears before the majesty, before the Father, before God in heaven, continually, ongoing, not just for a few seconds, one day a year. But he is always, always with the Father. How did he gain that entry? Because of his perfect obedience. Because he kept covenant perfectly. And his blood then becomes the perfect sacrifice for our sins. But also note his work. Go with me to chapter 9, verse 12. He entered once for all. His work is a once for all event. It is non-repeatable. You can't do it again. Once for all. Right? Think about that, that covenant under the administration there at Sinai. Morning sacrifices, daily sacrifices, trespass offerings, guilt offerings. Uh, all of the feasts, all the festivals have to include sacrifices. The Day of Atonement. It's all, the Passover, it's all got to deal with spilled blood over and over and over and over again. But Christ's work, Christ's sacrifice is a once for all sacrifice. Remember those of you who are in our, our, our Wednesday night group when, as we dealt with uh, various faiths and what they refer to this as? For us as Protestants, this is a table. This is a table. It's not an altar. We're not killing anybody this morning. The killing is all over. The sacrifice was once for all. To participate in the re-sacrifice of Christ. Did you hear that in the form? What's it alluding to? It's alluding to that which happens in the Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church or the Orthodox Churches. We're going to kill them again this morning. We're going to kill them again. We're going to kill them again. Once for all. We're not killing Christ. 
died. He gave his life once for all. It doesn't have to happen again. If you have to kill him again, wasn't it good enough yesterday? Wasn't it good enough last week? Was it insufficient that he needs to die again today? And the answer of Scripture is a resounding no. It was good enough for it was once for all. Because it was his blood. It was his perfect, a perfect Sacrifice never needs to be repeated. The only reason there was a second day of atonement is because the first sacrifice wasn't perfect. The reason there was a third day of atonement was because there wasn't a sufficient sacrifice in the first and second year. But there was a sufficient sacrifice for our atonement. Once for all, by his own blood. But then notice, lastly this morning, the purpose of that. Verse 14. How much more? See, what does that once for all sacrifice do? What does that once-for-all sacrifice actually accomplish? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, what does it do? It purifies our conscience from dead works. Remember what happened under that, that old First covenant of Sinai, we had all these washings, but what are they doing? They're washing their bodies, they're washing their hands, they're washing their clothes. What is all that stuff? It's all external. Those external washings pointed to what God was going to do through the blood of Christ. Not wash us externally, but he cleanses the conscience. He purifies the conscience. What does that mean? It means even though you and I can say to one another, and I can testify to you, even as the Apostle Paul could testify, I am the chief of sinners. My soul is guilt. Because of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. My soul. My conscience. There's no more guilt. There's no more fear. There's no need to hold back. There's no more fear of death. There's no more fear of the judgment. Why? Because Christ has purified my soul, your soul. Do we still sin? Yes, of course we do. There's only one perfect 
person, Jesus Christ. He purifies us. He purifies that conscience. No longer is Satan allowed to scream in our ears. The adversary has been silenced by the blood of Christ. The dragon that wages war upon your soul is silenced by the blood of Christ. Because you see, when you're in fear and when you're under guilt, you don't witness. You're afraid. You're afraid to speak out. You're afraid to live. You're afraid to serve. Oh, notice what happens in verse 14. He purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here becomes the ultimate purpose. Just as the people of Israel were to be a light in that world, a light to the Gentiles. God placed them under that covenant of grace so that they might testify and serve the living God. God takes you and I, dead sinners, breathes into us the breath of faith, the breath of life in Christ. So that we might serve Him. That we might live for Him. That we might testify of Him. Our purpose here. Our purpose here. Is not to build wealth. Our purpose here is not to build an empire. Our purpose here is not to make sure that when we die, we have a plaque somewhere honoring us for what we have done. Our purpose here is to serve the living God. And this table signifies what God has done. It reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ. But it's a celebration. It's a celebration of grace. It's a celebration of love. It's a celebration of freedom. It's a celebration of service. Amen? Amen.